0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to a brand new episode of the Legal Wolf podcast, which was set up to raise awareness of mental health and also tackle the stigma surrounding mental health across the globe. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Claudia, who is the Deputy CEO of the Global Mental Health Peer Network. Hi, Claudia. Hi, Steve. Thank you so much
1: for having me.
0: No problem. You're very welcome. And first of all, just for the listeners, would you be able to give a bit of background about yourself and also the reason for becoming a mental health advocate?
1: Sure. Um, okay, so um, as you're right, say, my name is Claudia Sato, and I'm from South Africa. Um, I have lived experience with ADHD and anxiety. Wow. Um, I was so, I'm sure we'll get into it, but um, there was a lot of trial and error with um, my diagnosis and, but basically now that's what I've been diagnosed with, so I'll explain later why it happened that way. Um, And part of the reason I became a mental health advocate was um, I wanted to change lives in the same way that somebody changed my life when I was um, admitted into hospital for the second time. Um, for for my mental health conditions and um, I wanted to make a difference as well to somebody else and initially it was more about sharing my story just so that I could maybe reach out to one person but as I began sharing my story I saw that there was a lot more interest and from there I sort of developed um, an interest in taking it further and more into the advocacy route.
0: Okay and I know in our previous conversations we discussed hospitalisation and putting Mm -hmm. a positive spin on being hospitalised. Would you be able to discuss in a bit more detail about that particular point?
1: Yes, sure. So I think for many, um, when we, we hear of... The term hospitalization we immediately associate um, there's, there's an illness, there's something wrong, which is which is the right way to look at it. Uh, but when we're looking at it, looking at it from a psychiatric perspective, somebody's been hospital, hospitalized for some psychosis or bipolar or anxiety, then it changes. The, the perception just somewhat changes without anything having to have happened. People just immediately go oh gosh, this person must be um, crazy, lazy, you know, all those those names that are associated with it. So um, from my own experience, when I was hospitalized, the first time was in 2012, shortly after my um, father had passed. And then again in 2015. um, And it was at that second hospitalization that really changed my my perception of mental health and hospitalisation in general because when I arrived, and this is something that I remember quite vividly, is when I arrived at the hospital with my husband and my mother-in-law, um, I was really, really nervous about going, you know, I wasn't sure what to expect. Yeah. Um, and with that, my anxiety just really was at another level. Um, and... What I did, and this is something that I always speak of because I feel like it's super important that people know that this happens but that we do have the power to change it. Um, When I arrived and I was booked in, and this was all voluntarily done, um, I remember getting into the elevator and the door opened, and when we got out, there was this young girl, probably within her adolescence, Age and she came running across, and she had like a box of what looked like pizza, and, and the nurse was sort of um, running after her and say saying, like, come back, come back. And i immediately, like in not even a few seconds, I had completely freaked out, and I said, There is no way I belong in this crazy place. Mm-hmm. This is obviously not for me. I don't belong here. And I started like hyperventilating about it, and I was like, No. Um, I'm actually, I mean, I'm, I'm a lawyer, I studied, um, I've got higher qualities and skills, that don't belong in a place like this, and I threw myself back into the elevator, and my mother-in-law was crying because she was watching this whole thing happen, and thankfully my husband was like, no, no, you have to stay, because you chose to do this, so the mindset was right, you knew that this was right for you, um, you cannot change this now, and it's probably not as bad as you're thinking, or we thinking it's going to be. So it took me a while to sort of get over that, and I didn't come back upstairs to that floor. I had to go down. I had to get calmed down. My husband had to reassure me, and what I was doing is I was already self-stigmatizing. Yep. And that's the message that I'm trying to get across, is don't do that because if you do that, you're not going to give yourself a chance to get in into hospital to get the right care. Um, and that's something that I learned quite quickly when I was there. Because I had immediately associated that myself um, that I was also crazy now, um, you know. And did I really have to be there? How bad am I? Um, am I really not okay to be within society? Do I have to be locked up? So I kind of did all of that. Um, and that was just within the first few minutes of being in hospital. Um, and my. My husband was like, I'm really sorry, but I have to go. And they walked away from me, and I just stood there, and I thought, oh, my goodness. Um, And it was from that second that I decided. When I saw them sort of turn their backs, and I don't mean it in that sort of way, but when they walked away, I was like, okay, it's up to you now. It's you, Tadi, you've got to do it. Um, So from that moment, I decided I've got to take another, um, sort of have another attitude towards my hospitalisation. And that's what made me, um, I suppose, react differently to the whole 21 days of hospitalization, the way in which I responded to treatments, Mm -hmm. to group sessions, to my actual psychotherapy. Um, So your own attitude is what's going to help you change or make that positive spin during your stay there.
0: Yeah. Uh Absolutely and it, it was very interesting when you said that you were a lawyer um, because obviously as a lot of the listeners will know I'm a lawyer specifically in mental health and there seems to be a lot of stigma mm-hmm. within the legal profession around mental yeah. health in the sense that mental health isn't inclusive within the legal profession it's kind of excluded and if you dare speak out about mental health difficulties within the legal profession you will either be perceived as inferior to your peers or weak um and that clearly needs to change and is something that i'm passionate about in trying to change now in terms of your anxiety when did the anxiety levels start?
1: Well, the anxiety levels actually started from childhood. Okay. Um, it actually went as far back as childhood. Um, so, you know, once I kind of started learning a little bit more about what anxiety is and what it can do to you, and you know, started learning more about psychology, I guess, in a sense, yeah. um. And I spoke to my mom about it, and I was like, were there signs now that I knew and I could talk to her about it? And she was like, actually, yes, now that we're looking at it, yes, there was. But at the time, she wasn't really aware of it. Um, I had also started school a year earlier than the normal age range, um, which I think might have also put a bit of pressure on me, um, sort of from a developmental stage. Um, And ADHD had seemed to be something that was... Picked up slightly, but nothing was really done about it because no one really knew and it was really brought up. Yeah. Um, and so I kind of, you know, um, had to go to remedial classes when I was in my third grade for focus and concentration uh, because I was very, um, I just couldn't really pay attention. I didn't want to do the work that um, other people were doing because I felt like it was boring. I wanted to do other things that were more challenging. So it was very confusing for me. Mm. I wasn't really sure. If I look back now, like, I wasn't really sure what I was really doing. <laughs> like, all I knew is I was going to school.
0: Um, yeah.
1: having said that, then you kind of adapt and you move on. And, and it went away for quite a while. Um, and then when I was at university studying law, that's when it came back again. Um, and I was actually booked off from my general practitioner for a while where he said, you've got to, you've got to actually take a step back from your studies. Wow. Um. And I didn't want to because I was like, no, I need to finish this. Like, I need to, I can't do this. I can't, this can't be the reason I don't finish my degree and I don't carry on in um, life. And, you know, it kind of made me think like that was the end of it for me. Um, I, it felt like I had no more, you know, my dream to become say, a sailor was now not going to happen um, because we don't know enough about it. So my anxiety started there. Um I still hadn't really seen anyone, though, to be honest with you. I hadn't spoken to anyone other than my GP. And when I ran my law practice in 2011, that's actually when it really started happening. Mm -hmm. Um, And the passing of my father brought about a lot of... Because I I used to keep a lot of my feelings internally. I never spoke about it. I was always seen as the strong one within the family. um, And I didn't ever show... and emotions and what happened is that I eventually imploded and that comes with panic attacks and I was having panic attacks daily um and it was really becoming um difficult to just do normal daily tasks um and yeah so from there that's when I really started seeking help
0: that's really interesting and fascinating because as you saw from a post that I put on linkedin um, mm-hmm. about going through my legal studies and my training contract, the the anxiety just shoots mm. through the yes. roof and it, it gets to the point whereby you you don't know what to do or how mm-hmm. to deal with it, but yeah. you can't necessarily talk to someone. I mean, I obviously paid to see a psychologist and it 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 sounds silly but the guidance that your parents give you mm-hmm. you kind of you take it on board but you don't at the same time because you're thinking well your parents are going to say stuff yeah. to support you because you're their mm-hmm. son daughter um yes. but when you hear it from someone independent who's got a degree in psychology you you tend to take things on board more when it's a professional telling you that you need to break things down into little chunks so for instance the easiest analogy to give is you're at the bottom of the mountain which is when you're starting your legal studies. And Mm -hmm. the top of the mountain is to be a solicitor. And you just want to get to the top no matter what. You just want to run up there and get there. Whereas the psychologist told me to break things down into little chunks. So, and this this doesn't solely apply to law. It applies to all walks Mm -hmm. of life. But with me being a lawyer, it was, well, you get through your... LLB degree then once you you've you've got through that you then get through your legal practice course and then Mm -hmm. once you've got through that you have the training contract and you break it down into three stages which is each individual seat and if you take it in small bites it is far easier to comprehend yeah, yeah, that's that's the perfect word. It's it's far easier to manage by taking it in small chunks. Um, so yeah, I mean, in in terms of the ADHD diagnosis,
1: mm-hmm.
0: at what age did you get that diagnosis, and were there problems in obtaining a diagnosis like ADHD?
1: Yes, so. The The diagnosis only was confirmed in 2016. Wow. So that's a long time. Um, and the reason for that was, so particularly between the years of 2011 to 2015, those were the years that I really had trouble. Um, and this was... At that time, it seemed very much bipolar-driven, um, in the sense of me having many mood swings. Um, and at the time when I was hospitalised, I, I had many symptoms that were really—it spoke bipolar. It said bipolar to you. Um, so, and and I was I was quite. Um, for lack of a better word but content with that diagnosis because it made sense once I learned about it and I was like you know what this, is, this does sound like what I'm doing um, so I can understand why they did that um, but what had what happened was because of your, when someone does have bipolar diagnosis there's, um, there's mood swings, there's this erratic behaviour, there's irrational thinking, there's obsessive thoughts um, there's also anxiety, obviously. Then you don't sleep properly, which means a lack of sleep. So you fall into a depressive state. Then maybe you come right again and then you go and you feel better again. So it seemed almost like I was going hypomanic and then a little bit depressive, of hypomanic. So that was the symptoms for about two years. So initially I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Um, and I tried medication for about two and a half years and it was just not gelling well something was still not right and while I was getting better to some degree in certain things I still felt something was not as it should be Um, and in 2016 purely because my psychiatrist who was looking after me during my hospitalizations had actually moved overseas so I had to find a new psychiatrist so purely through that and I did I basically started from the beginning again, yep. and um, my and now this psychiatrist is still my current psychiatrist, so I've kept her through since twenty sixteen, um, and she from the start said I can see why there may have been a diagnosis of bipolar at that time. It makes sense, and it made sense, um, but she was not convinced that that was the whole story. So she actually called in. She wanted to see my husband, so she spoke with him, asked him a lot of questions, and then she asked me a lot of childhood-related questions, and she asked me to speak to my mother. Um, hence, I mentioned earlier when I spoke to my mom, now that I knew more, I asked her a few more questions, and my psychiatrist took all of that together yeah. and came up with this diagnosis, and she changed my medication, we me off the others, and I actually started feeling better. Around 2018, things started slowly getting better. So that's why I said it was difficult or wasn't. I went through quite a lot to get to this point. But now I feel my medication is right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, even last year, I was on Ritalin for quite a while and it really helped. Um, And just certain things should change in my medication. That's what's so important that you find your right person to speak to you, um, you know, because they hear you and they listen to what you need and she somehow just was convinced that it wasn't bipolar anymore, that it was a more long-standing sort of diagnosis or condition that I've had for quite a while. And this was where this was without her knowing much about my past, because, like I say, she wasn't the psychiatrist that I used in hospital. So most of yeah. what I'd spoken during I spoken about during hospital with the psychologist that I got and the psychiatrist, she didn't know. So she actually was this new psychiatrist,
0: the one that actually brought up the ADHD and anxiety. That is so refreshing to hear. I mean, a doctor who's obviously willing to not only talk to you, but talk to other family members to collate Mm -hmm. a history and then to change the medication which obviously appears to have worked yes. Um, and, and has helped you greatly and it's also good to hear that you've had this consultant psychiatrist for a number of years now so you've got that continuity yes. Um, and that psychiatrist gets to know you and you get to know the psychiatrist and mm-hmm. I always find that um, particularly in my day job as a mental health lawyer, that if, if you have mm-hmm. the same psychiatrist throughout your care, the yeah. improvements in some cases, not all, but in some cases are very clear to see because yeah. there is that working relationship. Whereas when Excellent. there are Excellent. constant changes with psychiatrists, you're obviously changing to another psychiatrist who will have yeah. have a fresh pair of eyes to look look over the situation and then daily even someone else comes in, it, it can be very disruptive for people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um so that's really refreshing and pleasing to hear. Yeah.
1: Just just to perhaps add on that is um maybe there are psychiatrists that do the same, but I mean just maybe for general knowledge. Um, what, my, what I found really amazing when I started with my psychiatrist was I, I, I walked in, and you know, there's just certain things that you remember so well when it has such an impact. Yeah. And I was um, she was taking sort of like background history, um, very brief background history, and I thought I needed to sort of convince her. So the way I came across was almost like, I was trying to convince her that it is bipolar disorder. I don't want you to mess with what I've got, what I've really got in place and things like that. So as I went more into detail, like I'm on this medication and that medication and, um, you know, this is how I behaved and this is what I was doing, she actually said, um, let me stop you right there. And at first, I kind of had my back up because I was like, wow, you don't want to hear me out already? Like I kind of, it was a very strange sort of start because she made me feel like immediately was like, okay, maybe this is not the lady I want to see. Strangely enough, within a two minute cycle it changed completely. And she said, I don't want to know about what happened in the past. I want to hear what's happening to you right now. Like as at right now, what are you doing? What is the symptoms? What are you battling with? What are you okay with? What has gotten better? So and then as I started saying that, it just changed the dynamic of our relationship. Because initially, it felt like she didn't want to hear what I was saying. But now I understand that she wanted to hear not what I was going to 10 years ago, for example. She wanted to know what's happening now so that I can do a fresh, you know, sort of look at everything. And I found that to be really important to, to not rely on what I already knew, but to rely on what's happening right now. So that whatever she was doing was going to be for right now, for the present moment.
0: Yeah, which is obviously very important to focus Mm -hmm. on the present and what needs to be addressed now. Yeah, yeah. And now, moving on to discuss about the Global Mental Health Peer Network. So Mm -hmm. would you be able to explain to the listeners the work that you do, the main aims of the GMHPN? It's far easier to say the short version (laughs) and keep saying the long version. And also what <laughs> the future plans are for the organization.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, okay, so for for um I know you say GMHPN, so what I do is I just say the peer network. I feel like that's even <laughs> easier. So you're more than welcome to <laughs> say the peer <laughs> network, we all do. Um so we're a non-profit organization um that was registered in 2018. We then also registered as a public benefit organization in South Africa, um, while we global, our headquarters are based in South Africa, um, and we have just received our equivalent certificate as a charity for the United States. So we've got wow. this nice um, charity status, which is quite nice. Um, so we're a 100% lived experience, which means that everybody within our organization, from our volunteers to our executive committee members across the world, as well as staff, Members of the global office, so that would be myself, Charlene Zinko, who's our CEO, and then our project um, officer. He's everybody has has lived experience with the mental health condition, um, so that's what makes us unique, and this is what yeah. we bring to the table with whatever type of work or services we offer to individuals or to organisations. It's that we are experts by experience, our own experiences. Um, so we've got two main um, principles. The first is that we're an organization that promotes leadership within the lived experience community. So what that means is that we we recruit people to join our organization across the various countries and across various regions that are st- either starting up um, at a local level, local sort of advocacy work in their own countries. They've got their own movements maybe, or own organisations that focus on specific mental health issues. Our um, What we want to do is we want to empower those individuals to so then eventually, after a good few years of being with the peer network, they can actually go global and become global advocates. really get a feel for what the global status quo is. Uh, we do that through various... Uh, Program. So currently we're running a mentorship program where um, members that have been with us for two years um, and more, are, they have the opportunity to become mentors to the newly sort of joined uh, members. So that gives empowerment, that promotes leadership, um, there's skills sharing, there's knowledge sharing, so there's a lot of empowerment because you know not one voice is going to make a difference, but big voice or a good amount of voice is going to make a difference. Yeah. We like to teach one another things. The second aspect is that we provide a platform for people with lived experience um, to raise their concerns, to provide their own perspectives based on experiences. So this is all based on personal experiences and that can be at home, lived experience from home or work, career challenges, however they received, you know, um, Mental health issues or problems. So what we do is we offer platforms. So Often we get asked to assist with um, consultancy projects, help the bigger organisations. Like we've we've worked with international banks, with some bigger pharmaceutical companies. And what we do is we use our executive committee members um, to also, well, not use that's a wrong word, but have them participate in. The workshops we provide to these bigger corporates, so that we have that unique key perspective of lived experience. And now that mental health is gaining momentum globally, there has been the big, bigger global observation that we need to have the voices of persons with lived experience speaking at higher level meetings, giving inputs into the policies, um, be it government level, be it at private level at the very stakeholder level. So we really, we like to engage in that way. So that's the two main things that we work and focus on. Um, and that links up quite nicely with human rights in general, um, you know, like the general human rights. And that also, what, what we also do then is the different regions that we've got. So currently we've got 80 representatives across the world and we've got different regional structures and even country level structures. And we ask our members, what are the struggles within your countries that you feel need that you need help with to improve, or perhaps reach out to other stakeholders in order to make that improvements with that platform, with a go between, um, but we also like teach, you know, teach and learn from one another, and uh, we're involved in campaigning for anti-stigma discrimination we commemorate international dates that are specific so for example um, if it's human rights day we make it specific to commemorating human rights as it pertains to mental health if we look at international youth day we look at it as how does youth and mental health fit in and so we that's how we advocating for changes and we work a lot with the world health organization the united nations we speak at their events so, in a nutshell, I could go on
0: forever, but in a nutshell, that's what we need. <laughs> okay, which leads nicely on to the next topic that I would like to discuss in terms of how do we tackle the stigma around mental health in order to normalise the conversation to a similar level to how we discuss physical health. Um Yeah. How do you feel that we can go about that as a world to reduce yeah. the stigma surrounding mental health
1: yeah. well this is I think this is the million dollar question I It's always how do we change things yeah. um, and it's it's very difficult because different if we have to look at it geographically different countries or different continents will have different kinds of stigma that's, you know, within their own setup and cultural context, religious context. So we've got to, so this is what the peer network does as we look at, can we see, we've seen over the last six months that Africa specifically struggling with stigma and discrimination at the very basic levels. Um, whereas your higher income countries are looking at stigma from a slightly different perspective. They say we actually held a webinar last week Friday about mental health, psych, the field of psychiatry. So psychiatrists that suffer from mental health conditions, should they disclose it? Will they help with the barrier between the us versus them? Will they help improve treatment and you know, client and, and doctor sort of uh, relationships? So
0: yeah.
1: how, the answer is not like as sex and stone as we would like it to be. but essentially is we need to work together and not be fragmented in what we do. So everybody should be working towards the same goal, which is, like I say, is different for every country, but the broad idea of stigma is there. So what the peer network specifically focuses focuses on is um, language within policies um, that is used, language um, in general, just even within the public sphere. Like the more... So when I say language, you know, we've written, we, we wrote an article which we hope will be uh, published soon and I can share it then with you. But it's about how language can really deter or even not deter, but just sort of hinder any progress. Because if I'm at a workplace, and this is just an example, if I'm at a workplace and, well, actually, this is something I, I heard myself um, some along the corridor, somebody was saying, yeah, well, she's just having a bipolar day. And it wasn't at me. It was just the general, you know, conversation people were having. And then they had like, sort of like a little giggle. And I was like, you don't know what that person's going through. You don't know if in fact that person is going through something more severe, you know? So just certain things like that, um, needs to change because, that stops people from speaking up because that made me not want to speak up at work. When I heard that, I was like, oh, "I'm not going to say anything about it," because clearly there's already something. People are not too, too keen on you know seeing that others do suffer from other conditions that are not physical. Um, so language is huge, and we bring that up in every single workshop, in any services we provide to the workplaces, um, any services to governments any toolkits, guidelines, consideration papers, language is something that is key to reducing stigma. It is absolutely key.
0: Yeah, uh, I completely agree because language is very powerful and obviously me being a lawyer, you're very careful with the words that you use and obviously the way that lawyers use language is in a way that can essentially persuade a jury to either convict someone of a crime or exonerate them from a crime Mm -hmm. so language is very very key um one of the things that i feel is lacking in terms of tackling the stigma around mental health is education so As far as I'm aware, in the UK, there isn't anything Mm -hmm. in the national curriculum that specifically addresses mental health. And this is something that I have advocated for on many, many episodes of this podcast in that we should target the youngsters. So, starting at primary school, doing age appropriate work around mental health, so they are aware of. What mental health is, how you can look mm-hmm. after your mental health, and if you are struggling with your mental health, where you can get support from and yeah. This really should have been in place long before this pandemic, yeah. but I think this pandemic has made everybody realize that our children are essentially the future mm-hmm. and if they don't know how to cope with their mental health or know who to ask for support, mm-hmm. then it's going to affect them in later years. And yeah. it's it's far easier to talk to a child because a child has no um, defence mechanisms, no boundaries. A child will say the first thing that comes into their mouth, which can be a good thing at times, but can also be a bad thing. Oh, sure, <laughs> um, but it's it's far easier to change the mindset of a child than say someone who's in their forties or fifties because the older you get, the more set in your ways you you get and the more fixed yeah. views that you have. But nothing seems to be being done in the yeah. UK about that. And it makes me think that we've put so much effort into combating or trying to combat this health pandemic. And thankfully, we now have a very good vaccination programme that's taken off really, really well. But we're not planning for a mental health pandemic, which is, in all fairness, it's probably already here, but... No one's really aware of it in the top levels of government. So they're not planning for it until it becomes so blindingly obvious that they think, oh, shit, Um, Mm. we should have been doing something about this weeks ago or even months ago. Which, I mean, I suppose all governments have their own pressures at the moment with COVID and trying to handle covid effectively but i do feel that one i or at least part of the the government's teams should be working on mental health how we can improve access to mental health how we can improve support services for mental health and how we can reduce the stigma around it in order for people Mm -hmm. to talk about it more
1: yeah, for sure. Um, well, I'm glad that you brought that up because um, we have, as an organisation, um, we've done a little bit of our strategic planning earlier this year, and we have already got two proposals sent out to funders. Um, because we're non profit, we we do yeah. rely on, on funding, you know, for us to achieve these goals that we have. So we have already put out a proposal where we've got an educator on board with us. Well, should this be, um, approved or funded? Um, it would be including mental health into the curriculum firstly wow. at schools. So working on almost like a broaden and build theory, like use what you use, what we have in existence now, just try and see what we can just add into place or, you know, add extra resources and knowledge. So we will have an educator draft of the curriculum and we'll have our lived experience experts from our organisation also have inputs because we've obviously got different professionals working, um, our representatives. So they will bring a lot of value and a lot of meaningful contributions. So that's something we're looking at. The second thing we're busy working on and the proposal has also been sent out is peer support uh, workers um, in which or for which we would also include schools, both at a primary level as well as higher education, um, and that would be getting involved. At so the government most likely would be involved as well. Um, it would be a long process, but this is something that we're working on as well. And it's not only to educate the young, um, the youth or the children, like you said earlier. You know, there are obviously a lot more. I suppose they're easier to somewhat teach yeah. versus older, older um, individuals but also we need to look at the mental health of the educators as well as the staff at school because there's no point in trying to help the youngsters but then the middle ground the people that are also working within the same institution are not on the same level in that regard so we're yeah. looking at training the trainer sort of I can't give away too much, obviously, as to what we wanted to do per se, but it would be that everybody would be involved, both the kids, the educators, the management, principals. So education is a big focus for the peer network as well as peer support. So this is where we're hoping to make those changes um, and hopefully reduce the stigma. So what we have, however, found within the last year is that we're no longer talking stigma as we would before, as in, you know, somebody perceives you negatively in their stereotypes. Now what we've done is we've gone in and we've dug in further to find out where are the more vulnerable people getting stigmatized, in what context, how do we help in those contexts to bring, bring it out and sort of flesh it out, you know, and that's the only way that we can do it, but because we're a nonprofit, we can only do that with funding. So we've got loads of ideas and. Very short on human resources in terms of actual staff that are doing it, but to to for what you were mentioning now, we definitely have plans in place for that in, in the coming year.
0: That is fantastic, and it's so ambitious as well because to to have someone who could write a syllabus or a policy on mental health and how we can educate not only the youth but Mm -hmm. individuals and also more importantly like you said which is a brilliant point in that you 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 need to teach the people who are going to be delivering the teaching yeah because if you don't teach them then the quality of the teaching would be a lot less if, mm. if it was going on that individual's understanding of mental health and yeah. the understanding of mental health, I would imagine, very significantly from individual to individual. Correct, yes. So but there would
1: definitely be a gap. There would still be a gap. Yeah. Even though we would have improved somewhat, there would still be a gap. So we really have gone into researching this type of stuff and really asking the question. We're involved a lot with the Wellcome Trust, which is in the UK, um, who are focused purely on, on youth between ages of 14 to 24. So we've done a lot of work with them and we continue to do a lot of work with them. So that is something that we're really focused on. And I, will, I run all the youth-related um, projects. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to hear what others have to say as well. Like I said, we we, are the, we consider ourselves a global platform. So it's important that we understand what's happening all over the world so that we can, when we reach out to funders, that our proposals are as specific as possible um, with specific goals, you know, and not just short-term. There's no point in saying there's a three-month contract to go change the world. So it's not going to happen, right? Um, so, so these are things that we're working on a lot, um, education. We're also looking at get the gaming industry for youth as mm-hmm. in, as an, as an outlet for them, you know, like playing games and video yeah. games. We also continue into that. So that's another thing we've got going. We've had, we've got interest in it and people have come forward to us as well. So we are really trying to get as broad as possible in order to narrow down as much as possible, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, yeah so, so we've got that going and um, as soon as we've got more funders, we can actually hire people to help us get you know, things going but so far I think the organisation's come, come a long way um, in a very short period of time and as well something interesting is maybe the followers, uh, your followers and our followers can also keep tabs on our YouTube channel that we've got um, so it's, it's, it's 12 episodes, it's a series on mental health related topics and every month we do a different topic and we did I think the second or third episode was on education and we do have an educator who sort of came in and did a video for us and shared her perspectives from an educator and, and lived experience, a um, person with a lived experience. So maybe keep out, a, keep a lookout for that and, and hear out the different topics that are being spoken about.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I could talk to you for hours, Claudia. Mm, but for sure, <laughs> we are coming to the end unfortunately so there's two points that i would like to finish on the one is how can people contact you if they have any queries and also the light-hearted question now it's usually one of two it's either dream job and why but i think you are doing your dream job right now I basically am, <laughs> Um So I'll scrap that question in this episode and I'll change it with... Okay. If you could have a sit-down with anyone who's inspirational or had a um, positive impact on your life, uh-huh. dead or alive, and you could yeah. sit down with them for one night and have a drink, yeah. who would it be and why?
1: That's such a cool question. Um, <laughs> yeah, now, I can do mine with anyone, but I'm going to be specific now. <laughs> um, I'm going to say Taylor Swift. Hear me out. Okay.
0: okay. That's interesting.
1: Um, right. Okay. So during my really difficult times, her extremely deep lyrics, her very touching words is actually what got me through a lot of my Really bad times, um, and my friends and my family laugh about this all the time (laughs) because I literally like they are like, How are you doing? I have her playing in my car, she'll be on the podcast, she'll be, she plays everywhere. If there's me, there's Taylor sort of playing somewhere, and it's so weird because they're like, You realize you're not like 13. I'm like, Yes, I realize that, but I absolutely love it, and my. Actually, a colleague, and marie she always says, you know
0: what, Clouds, one not day you get a meeting. I'm like, I hope so. So, Taylor Swift. <laughs> that would be my choice. My <laughs> that, I I wasn't expecting that. I oh, know, uh, no one ever expected yeah. that. What? Taylor Swift? Okay. Okay, uh-huh. wow. And um, how, how can people contact you, Claudia? Uh,
1: sure. Okay, well, they can contact me... Um, Well, we're on all different social medias, but to be specific, they can contact me at claudia.sartle at gmhpn.org. So I don't know if maybe you would send something else out with my email, um, perhaps. Otherwise, they can find me on, well, the Global Mental Peer Network has their own page on Facebook, but I've also because I also do counselling, part-time wellness counselling and coaching, I've got um, a page on Facebook, which is counselling with with Talia, you can find me there you can find me on LinkedIn I'm happy for anyone to, to drop me a message or email me to discuss anything they'd like or ask any questions
0: okay great well I will probably put all those details on the poster when it okay. goes out to promote so all of your details are there for mm-hmm. the followers to pick up and yeah. I would just like to finish by saying it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. And I'm sure a lot of the listeners will have found that very insightful, very informative and probably very surprised with your last answer.
1: <laughs> I like to surprise people. We can't <laughs> all be the same. This is why we're going to all stick together. <laughs> yeah. but thank you so much for, for having me today. And also, um, I appreciate your kind words, but I think we need to do a shout out to you as well. I think you, you're also doing so much work and um, without people like yourselves reaching out and, and asking us these questions you know, we also wouldn't have an additional platform to mention what we're doing and what our goals are, so thank you so much as well for your hard
0: work Thank you And that concludes today's episode with the Deputy CEO of the Global Mental Health Peer Network Please feel free to leave a review if you enjoyed today's episode and also Like and follow the Legal Wolf Instagram and LinkedIn pages to stay right up to date with the latest content being released. Thank you.